Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 229 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we are going to be interviewing a special guest, Lily Nichols, RDN and CDE, and picking her brain on all things real food for pregnancy. So we'll definitely be covering low carb and pregnancy as Lily is probably best known for her work with gestational diabetes, but we'll also hit on postpartum nutrition demands and a little bit on first foods for baby as well. Yes. Super exciting. I was actually in a networking group with Lily, gosh, I want to say back in like 2010 or 11, and it was called Real Food RDs and um, also... um, Diane um, from Sustainable, Diana Diana Rogers. Rogers. Yeah, Yeah. Diana Rogers. Uh, So it was an interesting kind of like startup of badass paleo focused RDs that we all had rocking. And um, we had a couple, I think they went for like a year. So it'll be cool to connect with Lily again. I haven't uh, spoken with her directly other than Instagram DMs for quite a little bit. I love it. And this is definitely a bucket list uh, guest for me, for sure. (laughs) Awesome. Love it. All right. Um, So before we dive in, any big picture updates? Uh, well, we do have upcoming now available on the website, the next round of the 12 week virtual food is medicine ketosis program, which will be launching in May. So just forward thinking a little bit, we had closed, you know, last month, our uh, program, which is on its last class coming up here and, um, stay tuned. We're not really sure what we have yet in the mix, but we will be probably doing some form of our 12 week food is medicine keto class part two or a deeper dive or from prior members, a support group. So keep your eyes and ears open. We'll definitely be announcing that on Instagram and on the Naturally Nourished newsletter. Make sure you do subscribe to the newsletter because that's where we put all of our exclusive discounts. And we are doing a monthly kind of blast or blowout sale where we're doing a product once a month at 18% off. And so it's kind of uh, choose your own adventure. We're going with what we want to do. I'm doing a deep dive trailer on the product, like a nine to 10 minute video on the up-to-date research, the mechanism of action, how our formula is superior to many available on the market. And then just for our newsletter subscribers, we're doing 48 hour, 18% off sales, which is pretty radical because our price points are already quite aggressive. So definitely be sure to subscribe to the Naturally Nourished newsletter. Yes. A good way to stock up on some of your favorites for sure. Um, and then if you're not subscribed, to our YouTube channel, please subscribe over there as well um, so that you can get updates every week when we release a bite-sized food as medicine-focused videos. Yes, and we don't have any content out yet as you're listening to this on pediatric nutrition or on pregnancy, but more of that will be coming. Stella just got to star in her first video. (laughs) So we'll probably release that in April, maybe around Easter or something, uh, where we did our almond flour cutout cookies. And she got to help us, uh, you know, use the decorations and the frosting on that. So that was fun. Yeah. 
All right. Um, for past episodes on pregnancy, we've got a whole lot of them. So one per trimester of Allie's pregnancy, um, a keto and pregnancy episode 134 in the middle. Yeah, that's and a good then, one. Yep. And then one per trimester of my pregnancy, as well as birth and postpartum. Um, so I'll link all of the applicable um, episodes. And breastfeeding. Yep. And breastfeeding now is out too. Did. So we've, we've got a lot um, <laughs> covered already. All right. Awesome. So let's take a word from our sponsor of today's episode, Wild Foods. All right. So Wild Foods, you guys know, is a company we absolutely love that puts quality, sustainability, and health first in all of their products. Everything from coffee to turmeric to medicinal mushrooms and everything that they have is painstakingly sourced from small farms around the globe. Uh, They take their mission seriously to fix the broken food system and they believe like we do that real food is medicine. So they've partnered with us to give you guys an exclusive discount with the code AllieMillerRD for 12% off your order. Uh, Let's maybe touch on some of our favorites right now. Yeah. Brady and I just started exploring their coffees and I'm super happy to report because Brady is like a coffee connoisseur Uh that the two that we've tried, I'll link the particular um, coffee beans because they have, I think five in their line have been fantastic. And I know that that's always a a listener request and, you know, clients in our clinic are asking about the concern of uh, mycotoxicity or mold toxicity in coffee, as well as toxins. They do have a water press decaf as well. I've been sending people to that, but I didn't know they had other coffee for the win. And what I've (laughs) been loving putting in my coffee is the cacao butter wafers. So it's the fat of the the cacao or cocoa chocolate, right? And um, these blend really beautifully. They're unrefined and they're, of course, certified fair trade cacao butter. Uh, Blend really beautifully in your coffee, adding fat, making it like a fat boosted coffee, but also adding a lot of those antioxidants and flavonoid compounds that are so therapeutic for our body and also being a dairy-free option to get that healthy fat. Um, So I think that that's a really great thing to check out. I'm still such a fan of their matcha. It's beautiful stone ground from green tea leaves, of course, ceremonial grade. And um, when you're getting in that matcha, you're getting, you know, equal to 10 glasses of regular brewed green tea and nutritional value, high amounts of L-theanine and antioxidants as well to support both brain health, mood stability, and metabolic health. I was doing a ton of their tea blends as well um, last week when we had a big freeze here in Austin um, and all of Texas, really. Um, Their coconut chai is definitely a highlight, which um, is really delicious, blended with coconut milk and like a little pinch of their wild vanilla powder. Mm -hmm. Um, And then their Thai G is one I definitely have at home too. That's the like lemongrass and rooibos blend. So, so yummy. And I was doing a bunch of the immune one, uh, Mm -hmm. which was fantastic as well. That, that has, um, uh, what is cranberry elderberry in there and another, uh, current. Um, so really bright, all those anthocyanin antioxidants and caffeine free. Um, but a really great one for seasonal immune support as well. So definitely all of the fun things. They're like our favorite pantry staples that you can get. And, um, you can go on over to wildfoods.co that's co put in the code Allie Miller RD at checkout and you will get 12% off your order. All right, I'll go ahead and read Lily's bio and then we'll bring her on. 
Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. She's the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. You can find her work at lilynicholsrdn.com and on social media as lilynicholsrdn. Welcome, Lily. Uh, Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. We are so excited to have you on as a fellow RD advocating for real food. And I know so much of our audience is excited to hear direct from you. I'm so happy to be here. So thanks for setting this up. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're going to cover all of the things, but we want to hear first a little bit about how you got into the world of prenatal uh, nutrition and really real food for pregnancy, and particularly how you came to a low-carb approach and what made you passionate about making change in the prenatal nutrition and (laughs) gestational diabetes world. Yeah. Gosh, I can talk about this for a long time, but I know there's a (laughs) lot of questions we want to get to, so I'll try to keep it uh, fairly brief. Um, You know, I've sort of been-ish in the real food world since, you know, before I even did my RD training, so that was definitely, um, you know, ancestral eating and sort of Weston Price uh, principles were always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, things didn't necessarily shift to low carb per se until a bit later, but I always had that like idea in my mind that like, wow, what you eat can affect your children can affect your grandchildren. Isn't that so interesting? And I felt like my RD training did not really touch on that really at all. I mean, there's a little bit in like that life cycle nutrition class. I'm sure you, you guys took a similar one too, but not this idea that you really can like affect the expression of your baby's, you know, genetics and their, their trajectory of health for the rest of their life. Um, but when I had the opportunity to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program with the state of California, it's also known as the Sweet Success Program, I learned a really interesting statistic that kind of brought that idea full circle, which was that children born to mothers who have uncontrolled gestational diabetes face a six-fold higher risk of diabetes or obesity by the time they turn 13. And I was like, whoa, this is like our two birds, two, yeah, two birds with one stone moment, right? We're like, whoa, if we can impact mother's blood sugar levels, then we can really change these outcomes because you don't necessarily see statistics that staggering. Um, when blood sugar in pregnancy is well controlled. And by the way, there are actually some um, newer data showing that that increased risk of diabetes and obesity in children can be upwards of 19-fold higher. Um, So when I worked with them and then worked in clinical practice with women with gestational diabetes, you know, at, at first I wanted to be like a good dietitian and you follow the rules. Like this is the protocol. These are the guidelines. You recommend this meal plan with approximately this amount of calories and this breakdown of macronutrients. And, you know, even if it didn't entirely make sense to me, because I was already kind of leaning on the low carb side of things, I just realized, you know, 
I had experienced reactive hypoglycemia for years <laughs> and never really put two and two together until I was like, well, if I don't go crazy on the carbs, then I feel significantly better, right? <laughs> My blood sugar is way more stable. And so I always thought it was a bit strange. Like here we have women with carbohydrate intolerance. That's one way of describing gestational diabetes where we know their body cannot handle a large amount of carbohydrates without experiencing high blood sugar. And yet the meal plans we're giving them are like way more carbs than even I'm eating. Um, so that was like, you know, warning flag number one, and certainly warning flag number two, you get like six months into a position in this and you see not even six months that like your recommendations don't help. They're not right, helping right. their blood sugar. It's making their blood sugar worse in some cases. I mean, there are of course exceptions to the rule when you have people coming in eating like tons of processed food and soda and whatever, then certainly the guidelines are better than a diet entirely of junk food, but um, it, it, it only helps so much. And in some cases, especially with more, you know, serious, I guess, degrees of insulin resistance, it is just not enough. Um, it doesn't go low enough on carbs. And so that really made me dive into the research on whether or not we can go low carbon pregnancy, why there are so many objections, how the guidelines on setting carbohydrate recommendations were first set and like what evidence is that based on? Is it strong evidence or not? And led into my work with my books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and later Real Food for Pregnancy. It's kind of like a, it's all related to that early work with gestational diabetes. Yeah, it's so wild. I'm remembering back to my dietetic internship and the amount of carbs we were expected to recommend to mamas and even, you know, to kiddos. I was like, this is absurd. Um, yeah. Lily, where else, I guess, do you feel, so obviously carbs uh, are a big, big area, but where else do you feel that the conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines kind of miss the mark. Um, and I guess if you could update the guidelines, I'd love to know like what your maybe top three priority areas would be. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting one. So it's funny. I just taught a webinar to a, a group of dietitians, not necessarily real food people. It was like a state dietetics program. And I've, you know, it's just trying to go over like all the areas like of of prenatal nutrition, like myths and things that are outdated. And I mean, I was talking like extremely fast for an hour and I felt like I just barely scratched the surface. So there's a lot, a lot of things that I could say. I, I think the few ones that are really poignant and that they kind of, by correcting these, you would correct a lot of the other problems. Um, definitely would be revising the protein guidelines. Yeah. So, and that's big because a lot of our protein rich foods naturally are rich in a lot of the micronutrients that are naturally um, in higher demand or commonly deficient in pregnancy. So if you fix the protein recommendations, a lot of other things are fixed, including to some degree, though not entirely the carbohydrate recommendations, because our, you know, our diets are a balance of these three macronutrients, fat, carbs, and protein. So if you increase the protein, naturally something else has got to give. And they're already super low fat. So if we increase the protein, you'll decrease the carbs a little bit. That's also going to be a good thing. Um, the reason I think the protein needs need to be increased is that they were originally set 
mainly not on studies in pregnant women. Um, it was mostly, as with many of the guidelines, based on data from adult men, and then they adjust upwards via some estimates and math for the increased demands of pregnancy and, and fetal needs. But it's not enough. So there was a study done in 2015. It was the first ever study to directly estimate protein requirements in pregnancy, and they found the current guidelines are a significant underestimate. At all stages of pregnancy, but especially towards the end, they underestimate the requirements by 73%. I wow. mean, this isn't like you missed the mark by 5%. It's like mm -hmm. you way underestimated how much protein is optimal for um, pregnancy. So that one definitely is a big one. And then probably, gosh, it's hard to say what I can choose next because there's so many. I mean, I think the, all the macronutrients need an adjustment. I think we're as a whole unnecessarily obsessed with making everything low fat. So certainly mm -hmm. we don't need to be eating low fat in pregnancy. And in fact, in doing so, you're also limiting intake of a lot of important micronutrients. But if I can just shine the light on one micronutrient recommendation that definitely needs an update is for choline. And choline is a B vitamin-like compound that's very important for liver health, placental health, brain health, including brain development of baby. And the original estimates for choline um, were set actually in, before 1998. We didn't even have a recommended intake for choline. And it's only set at an adequate intake level because we don't have enough evidence to set an RDA. And that, again, was based on data from adult men in studies that were reducing um, you know, liver damage from a choline deprivation diet. So they're set at a really low level. We now have randomized controlled trials at different levels of choline supplementation showing that the recommendations should probably be at least doubled. And if you fixed the choline recommendation, you would again have this carryover effect of fixing a lot of other problems with the recommendations. Because if you fix the choline recommendation, automatically you're going to have to include animal foods in the diet by default. You have to. You cannot create a vegan meal plan that has adequate choline, particularly if you're going to be aiming for more than double what the current recommendation is set at. So automatically, you're going to have people eating egg yolks and liver. You have people eating egg yolks and liver, and virtually all of the micronutrient deficiencies are like a moot point because you've provided them with some of the most nutrient-dense foods. So those would be my top picks simply because they would cover so many bases. Love it. I think that's great. And we'll dive a little bit deeper into micronutrients in a moment. I want to close out on the carb information. And of course, you know, our audience is quite well-versed in the world of whole real foods and, you know, even ketogenic type style eating. Um, I want to hear about where that recommendation of the 175 grams of carbs a day came from. Was that the same kind of extrapolation from healthy men? And um, I want to hear about on the world of carbohydrates, um, you know, do you find then carbohydrates at what level? Are they completely non-essential due to, you know, gluconeogenesis and transamination? What are considerations of going too low? And mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on like a carnivore approach or a, a, an extreme zero carb approach to eating in a prenatal setting? Right. So um, yeah, I'll start with the carbohydrate recommendations. And I'll tell you what's interesting about this is when I was, you know, earlier in my work, I was asking all of these dietitians and medical professionals who had spent literally their entire career 
in the gestational diabetes field and not a single one was ever able to tell me where these recommendations came from. So I had to dig through this Institute of Medicine document on macronutrient requirements. That's like 1300 pages to find this, by the way. It's like nobody, it's not like easy to find, so to speak. So where it came from is they start with an estimated average requirement for non-pregnant women, which is set at 100 grams of carbohydrates per day. We can talk about how that is kind of a made up number, of course. Um, then they add in extra to account for the increased energy demand of pregnancy, um, which is about 35 grams, assuming a certain amount of extra calories at a certain percent of those calories coming from carbs. And then finally, you add in an extra 33 grams, which is the estimated amount of glucose that's used by the fetal brain per day. And you add those numbers together and round up a bit, and you get 175 <laughs> grams. Um, now, of course, when you read that document, and I mean, we've all heard this quote everywhere in the low carb space that the lower limit of dietary carbohydrate compatible with life is apparently zero, provided that adequate amounts of protein and fat are consumed. That already brings into question the starting point of 100 grams as an estimated mm -hmm. average requirement, right? Um, and it doesn't even, it takes no consideration of gluconeogenesis really. So I don't know why they come up with this recommendation and then assume like all of that, these grams of glucose must be supplied exogenously via the diet. Doesn't make sense, but that's where the recommendations um, originated. As far as there was like three parts to your question. So the next yeah, part no, was... Cool. You did good. Um, well, you know, we often, well, I, I don't want to share our opinion. We want to hear your opinions in this episode. Um, so we'll, often we'll get people that were eating carnivore and get pregnant and they're curious, can I stay on a carnivore approach if that is managing my autoimmune condition uh, or do I need to start to add carbohydrates? Yeah. So I don't think we have like super great answers on that. Um, so there's a couple things that I take into consideration. First of all, I, I, I take a very like micronutrient forward approach to prenatal nutrition and that um, I sort of reverse engineer what, where do the macros fall when we hit all of the micronutrient targets. And so for going more extreme in low carb, the main consideration for me is like, are you getting enough of your micronutrients? So it, I think that depends on how a carnivore diet is like put together. Develop. What, what mm -hmm. does carnivore eating mean to you? Just like a low carb diet for one person is different than a low carb diet for another person. Like you can have a low carb diet that's like all processed keto food, or you can have a low carb diet that's all real food and includes, you know, low carbohydrate vegetables and, you know, has, has more than just like keto bricks or <laughs> whatever right, right. it is. Um, right. So I, I'd say I, I would look at the micronutrients first. Um, personally, for, for me, it's not my default. And I, while I do think there, you could make the uh, ancestral argument that there are some cultures that eat very low carb. So, and I do talk about this in my books where I believe it was a 2013 study where they were looking at modern living, living hunter gatherer societies and the level of carbohydrates they consumed. And on average, their diets were like 16 to 22% mm -hmm. 
carbohydrates. Um, and there were some at extreme latitudes, like the Inuit of Alaska and Greenland, for example, that have closer to like three to maybe 15% calories coming from carbs. So I, I do think obviously it's possible. Otherwise these societies would not still be existing. <laughs> right. You know, you wouldn't be able to reproduce um, if you're living in the Arctic and really your diet is almost entirely animal food. So I do think, you know, the body can make do, but also like, what are their diets made of? Like they're eating nose to tail, they're eating all the parts. They're not necessarily like not eating any plant food. And I mean, I would know I lived in Alaska for a number of years. Um, you still do eat plant foods. There's just not as many of them available, but you will avidly see native peoples gathering, you know, berries in the summer, which they preserve in seal oil to consume in the winter. And like, yeah, the berries are not very sweet, um, but they're very, you know, you're, they're still getting some plant food. Still getting so vitamin C. <laughs> they're getting their vitamin C big right. time, especially mm -hmm. in those, um, those lingonberries. So sure. um, I think you just want to like do a micronutrient analysis and what you're eating and see where the gaps mm -hmm. are. Um, and then finally, I'd say like, how are you feeling? So I think a lot of people kind of expect that whatever kind of diet is working for them at one point in their life is going to work at every point in their life. And for me with my work with clients, as well as like my experiences and my two pregnancies and granted, I don't necessarily eat a keto level of carbs. I mean, sometimes I do. I'm, I, I consider it more moderately low carb, probably because I'm just in the low carb space. So I know like my threshold for what's low carb and not low carb is different than like a, a standard dietitian would be like shocked at how right. many carbs I eat. Right. <laughs> but, um, among the keto crew, I don't eat 20 grams of carbs a day. Right. Just to right. give you like a, a, a ballpark. I've found that most people need some carbs. Um, and I think they need carbs, especially in the first trimester. Um, I think there's many possible different reasons for this, including like the increased demand that's on the thyroid. It's going through like crazy adaptation during the first trimester. Um, the nausea and food aversions, of course, but it seems like particularly in that stage of pregnancy, it's really hard for people to stay keto if they previously felt great doing a ketogenic diet. Um, secondly, I think we do need to consider the increased demand of um, vitamin C. There's a lot of collagen building and remodeling going on in pregnancy, which does require vitamin C. And yes, there are some animal foods that you can get it from, but are people eating those sources very often? Not necessarily. So like if you really are craving that citrus, which a lot of people do, like oranges and lemons and whatever, again, they don't have to be like high carb citrus sources. You could do limes or lemons instead of oranges, for example. But yeah, yeah. I do think it's important to consider um, that source as well. I also think people just, it is helpful to have a bit of fiber on board, not necessarily that carnivore means like you're going to have messed up bowel habits some people find it's like actually significantly helpful um but i i do think having some bulk in there to keep things moving can also be helpful so um i, I personally don't like default to or necessarily endorse a carnivore approach but i do support like a wide range of eating and if you're meeting all of your micronutrient needs and you feel really well eating a mostly carnivore approach then like more power to you. That wasn't my experience. And that's not my experience with most of my clients. But I, I think that there's, of course, a possibility within human adaptation that that works for some people. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say, no, never. It's just 
not usually. Yeah. I, I love that Lily. And it's interesting because the, the kind of audience that Becky and I have, it's like, we're often providing them permission to get out of that myopic tunnel vision of, like you said, what worked pre-pregnancy and being mindful of the insulin demands in that first trimester and not thinking that that means that you're releasing your willpower. It's that you're actually being innately connected to your body (laughs) and your body's needs and demands. And it's okay to pivot and it's okay to recalibrate. And that happens through all life cycles. So I think that's a really beautiful answer. And you are, I mean, really, I had one person say this to me and it really, um, resonated was that pregnancy is kind of like a bodybuilding stage you know like what a bodybuilder would eat maybe not for like the competition part where you try to get super cut right before you're whatever dressing up (laughs) in a bikini and (laughs) greasing yourself up right but like for the actual building of tissue um it is more efficiently done when you have some carbohydrate right and in that first trimester you are not only it's not that baby is growing super quickly um, in terms of like putting on a lot of weight, but you are growing an entire organ and that entire organ, the placenta is what is going to be guiding the growth and the transfer of nutrients to your baby. So arguably you are in a bodybuilding stage, even in that very early stage of pregnancy. And I find a lot of people, it's like that first trimester you need to like ease up on your fear about carbohydrates. And then later on in pregnancy, a lot of people feel better sort of tapering back down to yeah. low carb. I don't know if that was either of your experiences, yeah. but that was certainly the case um, for both of my pregnancies. Yeah. I lived on grain-free crackers and um, gluten-free sourdough toast for the whole <laughs> first trimester. It's like yep. totally a, a 180 from where I was carb-wise prior. Absolutely. Uh, especially with the the morning sickness, you kind of need a little something. Um, So let's let's go back a little bit on the micronutrients. So I know you mentioned choline is the big one. And I think I got that from your book that even when I was eating, you know, bacon and eggs and um, second and third trimester, at least getting liver in first trimester, it did not happen. Mm -hmm. I found that my numbers, if I really stacked it up, I was still you know, only hitting that like 400, 450 range every couple of days. Um, And I ended up actually adding choline supplementation based on um, some studies that were referenced in in your book and adding on um, even to like a real food approach. Um, But what are other, I guess, micronutrients that um, you feel are really important to focus on or that most pregnant women don't get enough of? Oh gosh, there can be so many, right? Um, Iodine is a really big one that I don't think gets nearly enough attention, uh, especially because so many people, particularly in the US, are just not consuming iodine-rich foods. You know, our best sources of iodine by like amount of iodine per serving would be seafood and seaweed. And so when you go to places like Japan and Korea that have a high intake of seafood, their iodine intake is like off the charts compared to the U.S. Whereas in the U.S. where we don't have uh, as much of an intake of those foods, and of course, certain times like first trimester, that would be for a lot of people challenging to get fish and seafood in. Most of our intake is coming from dairy and eggs. And then if you add on to that, the number of people who either like have an allergy to one of those foods or prefer not to consume them, you can see we start to run into problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So iodine is very, very important for 
the maternal thyroid. So your thyroid, like I mentioned, goes through these huge adaptations in pregnancy. It starts pumping out greater amounts of thyroid hormone for very early on in pregnancy. Actually, there's a belief that this is tied to um, the reason we all get morning sickness, actually. Uh, and your body tries to shunt as much thyroid hormone to baby as possible because it's not until mid-pregnancy that the fetal thyroid is able to supply its own. And the reason why it's so important is that it plays a pivotal role in brain development. I mean, not only like mother's metabolism and how she feels, but also baby's brain development. So iodine is one that, you know, I think half of prenatal vitamins on the market don't contain any iodine. And most of them don't contain enough. They don't contain the, the recommended amount. So that's when I think people need to focus on a little more. Certainly, if we have people consuming um, seafood, which a, lo a lot of women are scared away from consuming in pregnancy for various concerns, if we just get people to eat enough seafood, that pretty much takes care of the iodine issue. Um, in addition, if we also promote the consumption of eggs with the yolks and grass-fed dairy as tolerated, you're, you're pretty well covered without having to require a supplement. But I still think there are going to be some people who will need it no matter what. Like for example, in women who don't eat a lot of animal foods, unless they're consuming seaweed on a regular basis, a supplemental source of iodine would be um, especially important. And if eating seafood, is it a recommendation of, you know, a, a good four to six ounce portion three times a week? Um, or are they still going to be needing to add like dulse to their salt shaker or combo in their bone broth, or, you know, nori sheets? What, what's kind of a, a food as medicine prescription to meet the minimum need, I guess, in a week on average? Yeah. So I'd have to run the numbers exactly. It also depends on if people are consuming iodized salt and sure. how often, right? And assuming <clears throat> and also, real fooders aren't except for the trace amount, you know, in their sea salt, which isn't iodized per se. Exactly. Um, and even iodized salt, I think like something like 20% or so of the iodine and iodized salt is um, lost during cooking or storage mm -hmm. or exposure to air or light. So I, I don't even think of it as a super reliable source. Yeah. But as like a ballpark, and I say this without having like done an analysis on like a week's meal plan where I'm looking at, you know, yeah. every source of iodine. And by the way, that's really hard to do because iodine is often not even included in the nutritional analysis of a lot of foods. So it's, it's kind of a best guess. Like if you're going to run your diet on chronometer, for example, most foods don't have the iodine levels listed um, because it's so variable based on what's in the soil or the water or the rain, or it's just crazy. So I would say, you know, I usually default to a minimum of 12 ounces of high quality seafood um, per week, I think arguably it's probably ideal to have more like a pound per week. Yeah. Um, although I know a lot of people don't do that, but you know, high quality, low mercury, high omega-3 seafood. Um, and then on top of that, I do think it's helpful to have seaweed a couple times a week as well. So you could have it at, like you said, in tiny amounts, um, sprinkled in with your salt or other seasonings. I'm also really big on um, adding kombu or wakame or other seaweeds to any type of stews. I always add it, not that I do beans or legumes super often, but if I'm doing something like a split pea soup, then I'll often add some of those, um, some like kombu to it because it helps 
break down some of those difficult to digest carbs so you don't have like the the gas issue from legumes so it has kind of that that double whammy it's like adding beano directly to your soup plus you get the benefit of the iodine right yeah uh, so i think those as well as eating eggs regularly and um grass-fed dairy regularly particularly like the the either fluid milk or yogurt um, seem to be higher in iodine, then I think you have your bases covered. Got it. And then um, beyond iodine, I know um, B12 was one I at least read on um, your blog. Um, and sometimes we see um, with OBGYNs like noting excess B12 in, in a serum test. Um, would you have any concern for B12 excess or is that a nutrient we really need to focus on here as well? So I would be wondering if the person's actually utilizing their B12 well, right? Um, it's kind of tricky with these, some of these methylating nutrients. So like your, you know, your choline and your folate and your B12 and your B6 and your glycine. And like they're, they all need to be consumed, you know, within the context of one another because they work together. So I do think there can be cases where people go overboard on B12. The absolute consequences of that, I don't know how <clears throat> dangerous it actually is because the studies that have been done on it are almost always combining it with synthetic folic acid. And so then you have to weigh like, what is the effect of high levels of unmetabolized folic acid versus the effect of high B12, right? I mean, it just kind of, it, it's very convoluting. There's always confounding factors in those studies. So I haven't come across anything that is convincing me that elevated B12 is a problem. But if I did see serum elevated B12, then I would, I would be wondering um, what form are they supplementing in? How often are they actually utilizing it? Like, is it getting into their cells or is it just like floating around in their in their serum. That's what um, we always say. Yeah. We're like, run an MMA, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, right. <laughs> look, look a little deeper, but we, you know, it's hard with conventional practitioners. Um, they, they often just don't really know those tests and don't know what they're looking at necessarily. Um, but B12 is vitally important for um, brain development of baby. There have been studies looking at the amount. So women who are consuming the RDA, of vitamin B12 and whether or not they have um, markers for deficiency and whether their babies have markers of deficiency. And it's been shown that we need probably at least triple what the current RDA is set at. And I recently came across a UK study that pretty much confirmed the same. Um, and this holds true through breastfeeding as well, because B12 is also transferred via the breast milk and is very dependent upon maternal B12 status, um, particularly if you go back to early pregnancy. It's like early pregnancy B12 status is highly correlated with infant B12 deficiency later on, even if they've corrected for the B12 intake later, which is really interesting. Wow. So we want to correct for um, B12 deficiencies. I mean, ideally, as with all nutrients prior to conception, if you can, um, but it's really about consistent intake versus single high dose intake because your body just can only absorb so much at a time. So it's best to have it just spread throughout your diet over time. I mean, supplement, supplements certainly have a place as well. 
Um, but it's kind of tricky to be like, oh, we'll just correct for it at this late stage. It's like ideal to correct for it as early as you can because there, there still can be carryover consequences later on. Wow. I love that. That big concept of this kind of, as you mentioned, epigenetic influence and really laying the foundation. <laughs> this isn't just eating to prevent macrosomia <laughs> and, and you know, this one thing, right. like birth weight with excessive carb and gestational diabetes. It's really laying the foundation of the function of your baby and, and their metabolic flexibility and also their neurological health and so much more when we look at then the impact of these deficiencies in toddler and, you know, pediatric development and such. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And B12 deficiency is one that's like particularly frightening. And yes. I posted about this like a long time ago on my Instagram. <laughs> you know, at times I, I get like more ballsy and will post things that are more like are going to incite rage from people. And then there's other times where I just like don't have the bandwidth for it. Um, but it was a case study on vitamin B12 deficiency in an infant of a vegan mother. And um, she had taken a prenatal her whole pregnancy with 100% of the RDA, which again is like three times too low. Mm-hmm. And then like most women discontinued taking her uh, prenatal postpartum, because that's again, not really standard of care to be like, continue taking your prenatal during breastfeeding, because what you eat and what you consume and supplement with affects your breast milk. No, <laughs> it's eat whatever you want. Your breast milk is perfect no matter what. Right. So she stopped taking her prenatal and her, I mean, she was severely B12 deficient already, but her baby became severely B12 deficient. And this typically happens somewhere between like four to seven months or so, they use up their stored B12. And you, this baby had, I'd have to go back to the actual post, but this baby, essentially, they often lose a lot of their motor skills. You mm-hmm. literally have demyelination mm-hmm. of their nervous system, and you have cerebral atrophy, literal brain shrinkage confirmed via MRI. And even after you correct for this B12 deficiency, you you don't correct entirely the demyelination issue. You don't correct the issues with the nervous system. Um, these infants were exposed to B12 deficiency at these very crucial stages in development will have lifelong problems. And the research is like extremely consistent and extremely dire. And people like can't wrap this, like they can't take in this information if it's in contrast with their preferred way of eating, like not consuming any animal products, like the level of cognitive dissonance this like brings the to them is just like, yeah. you know, it, it, it's hard to swallow. It really is. But we just, again, we have to be so um, cautious anytime that we try to like stray from the sort of like default human species diet like we don't know all the consequences of it. And so what, you know, what I think of is like, okay, if there's a B12 deficiency, then what other deficiencies are there, right? Because B12 is going to be found in foods that also have choline, that also have DHA, that also have iron, that also have zinc, that also have preformed vitamin A, like all of these nutrients that work in synergy for optimal brain development and nervous system function and whatever. So here, Yes, we can very clearly isolate B12 deficiency as a problem 
in infants. And that's probably one of the nutrients that we have one of the like strongest um, arguments for consuming enough of and correcting deficiency of in, in mother and baby. But there's so many other like doors that haven't even been opened in the research on this that just make me like really, you know, caution people against like, you know, dietary extremes, particularly just excluding animal foods. I think it becomes really a, a dangerous situation in some cases. Okay, before we go any further, I think this calls to action a mid-roll sponsor of the Naturally Nourished Supplement line. So we have a bunch of supplements that are available to pregnant mamas as well as moms-to-be. We've talked in past episodes about how things like dysbiosis can interfere with your estrobolome, driving estrogen dominance and interfering with fertility, or insulin resistance can be a big cause. And so we look at things like even our berberine boost and our probiotics. But the big bundle that I would highlight for today is our Mama to Be bundle, which incorporates three products. It uses the Multi-Avail Mama, which is our prenatal in our line. And so a lot of the things that Lily has mentioned, including like iodine, um, a lot of trace minerals, selenium, copper, zinc, chromium, are all going to be found in a ideal form, so best form for absorption or bioavailability, and in a potent dosage, which is really important to note. Uh, Our multi-avail mama is four capsules for a serving. All of the B vitamins within it are methylated. Uh, What are other highlights, Becky? Choline's a big one that I find all the time is missing in even some of the top prenatals on the market, and Lily just mused on that. Um, So I think it's got 50 milligrams of choline. Is that right? Yeah, which we often do add in like a B complex for moms that have historically ran low. All of the minerals are going to be, you know, over 100% of need or or right around there and um, everything in the most bioavailable form. So uh, definitely check that out. And we do recommend using the Multi-Avail Mama even for a year pre-pregnancy to optimize your nutritional status for that, again, epigenetic influence and ensuring that you're set up to grow a super baby. Yeah. And during breastfeeding too, don't forget, don't drop your prenatal. Right. (laughs) And then the other formulas in there are EPA DHA Extra, which is a potent form of an omega-3 fatty acid supplement. It is going to provide us, well, first off, it is molecularly distilled and tested for PCBs and toxins as well as dioxins. So when we're talking about the uh, fat solubility of toxicity in the oceans, the EPA DHA provides both the anti-inflammatory EPA as well as the brain-boosting DHA to optimize uh, fertile (laughs) fetal brain. We're special. I don't know what happened. I think I'm just going to try to say that part. (laughs) So it contains a potent dose of the anti-inflammatory EPA, as well as the fetal brain developing support with the DHA, which we know has so much beneficial research behind it. Yes. Um, And that one I would note, um, we have reformulated the EPA DHA extra. Um, However, the amount of DHA in it um, stayed, so the EPA in it increased per capsule, but the DHA stayed the same. So I want to call out to mamas to be, 
I would stay on at least two capsules of the EPA DHA, even though it's been kind of bumped up in terms of its um, full omega-3 content, the DHA stayed the same. So I would think at least two, maybe even upwards of three in that second and third trimester for that one. Absolutely. And then the third product in the Mama to Be bundle is our Restore Baseline Probiotic. So as we discussed, you know, a lot of the food recommendations and avoidances are based on the idea that a pregnant woman's immune system is suppressed during the period of pregnancy. And so we worry about like foodborne illness and contamination in that sense. Well, the best way to defend against the pathogens in our food, you know, foodborne illnesses is to support a robust microbiome. This also is going to play a role with healthy delivery and recovery, um, can prevent even things like mastitis and bacterial imbalance. So that's a great one that we say as a daily as well, which will be taken in the evening. So going over to AllieMillerRD.com, the Mama to Be bundle includes all three of these fantastic products and when you get a bundle you get to try the products on a discount i wanted to ask real quick on um the recommendation for liver um as a a great source of choline b vitamins etc kind of like nature's multivitamin if you will um i've definitely had mamas um, that i've recommended liver to be a little bit wary and concerned of regular consumption for vitamin a toxicity Um, is that something that um, we should be concerned about and kind of how much liver is enough liver (laughs) i've been meaning to write a post on this and every time that i think about writing a post on it i'm like I can't address this in a social media format. Like I need like a a long form blog post to assess this, but I'll I'll give you the the short answer. Um, So the concerns about vitamin A as a potential problem in pregnancy is based on research mainly from the 90s where they supplemented women with high dose synthetic vitamin A and found that there was a slightly higher incidence of certain birth defects in the women who are taking too much, taking high doses. Um, What's interesting is there's been some follow-up research that hasn't confirmed those findings necessarily, and some additional research showing that maybe our vitamin A requirements are are set fairly conservatively, um, because you can actually have some of the same problems with like certain birth defects um, with too low of an intake. And Currently, one of the latest studies I read found that 80% of women of childbearing age in the U.S. were not consuming enough vitamin A. Um, And I think, I mean, if you two are like looking at your practice and running nutrient analyses, if you're looking specifically at retinol intake, I think you would also find the same. Unless it's in people who are regularly consuming liver, like a lot of rich animal sources of vitamin A. It's just not something that people consume enough of necessarily. Um, And there was a study out of um, the Netherlands that found that 70% of women who specifically avoided liver did not meet the recommended daily allowance for vitamin A. So then it raises the question of, okay, if some synthetic vitamin A above a certain threshold has a risk of birth defects, does that same risk apply to liver? And thus far, the research shows that it doesn't necessarily. Um, it doesn't have the same effect on serum vitamin A that we know. It's, it's 
process differently than the synthetic stuff. So I think we have a little more leeway with liver than we do with supplemental preformed vitamin A. Although I will say, I don't think people need to be consuming like mass quantities of liver. So one of the ways that I look at it, and I, I think if people have ever done like a cow share or something for, where you're actually like ordering a whole animal where you get all the parts, like you get one liver, right? Okay? <laughs> and like a cow liver is really big. It is, but it's like, you're also getting hundreds of pounds of meat to go with it. So mm -hmm. I, I think some people here, I should be eating liver. And so their default is that they think they need to be eating like a full on, like six ounce serving of liver and onions, like three times a week. And like, no, you don't need to be eating tons and tons of liver. I mean, arguably preconception, if you're super nutrient deprived, um, maybe there's a time and a place for like eating a, a higher dose more consistently of, of liver. But during pregnancy, I think like three to six ounces a week is plenty. Um, and the way that I do it personally, for most of it, I, sometimes I'll eat straight up liver, but um, most of the way that I consume liver is by making it into a pate and then adding that pate into ground meat dishes is what I call hidden liver. So you're getting like a, a sort of a smaller dose of liver spread out amongst a meal. First of all, you don't have to taste liver flavor, which a lot of people don't enjoy. But second of all, say I make a meatloaf, you know, the whole family is eating it first of all, but second of all, you're going to have leftovers. So you're eating like a small dose of liver over several days versus having like a huge input of vitamin A all at one period of time. If people have, again, if people are like really concerned about having like a bolus, like serving of liver and oh my God, my vitamin A intake for that day is higher than another day. Like A, that's going to happen. B, that's normal. But see if that's a concern, you can eat it more as hidden liver where it's sort of diluted amongst um, a ground meat dish. So you're getting smaller doses. But again, I think like, you know, a couple ounces of liver a week is fine. If you're really, you know, so nervous about it, you could do every other week. But I, I, we don't have any research to suggest that three to six ounces a week is, is harmful. Love it. I, I, love, I love that concept. Oh, go ahead, Becky. I was just going to say, I think the hidden liver sounds way more doable. I remember like that was how I celebrated being over <laughs> morning sickness was like making a, a chicken liver pate um, and even chicken being like more palatable per se than, than beef. I had to freeze a lot of it. So I was like, Oh, I got overzealous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ancestral blends are helpful too. Those yeah. are big with the mm -hmm. cow shares and whatnot. Now it's so much easier at your farmer's market to get the blend of heart, kidney and liver and beef, you know, so usually it's like a 50% sure. organ, 50% beef, and then you can even dilute that. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with those epic uh, liver bites that I would eat like dog treats and just <laughs> chase with a bite of um, dark, bitter chocolate after that was another technique. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Just, and you know, because you, it's so nutrient dense, I mean, you can have just like a tiny bit and you're adding so much nutrition to your diet. I, I really think people have this idea like liver is good for you. Okay. I'll eat liver every single day. Totally. Like, totally. Liver is a food that in real life you like can't overeat. It is a self-limiting food. <laughs> yep. It just you just can only get a few ounces in before you're like, and 
I have had enough. Okay, mm-hmm. moving on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's stay in the culinary space and talk about salt. Um, I loved a lot of your hit on both the importance of salt uh, during pregnancy and maybe you know the question of salt restriction in general and also in baby's first foods. So if you can share with our listeners just a little bit on maybe why it doesn't make sense to limit salt and the importance of a quality salt. Okay. This could be a really long answer, so I'm going to try to keep it short, <laughs> especially because you threw in the baby thing in there, which is like a whole can of worms that everybody is so uh, strongly opinionated about, especially in the, the social media baby feeding space. So pregnancy is a time where your body has more fluids on board, like your fluid volume goes up by about 50%. You have more fluids in your bloodstream, your blood is more dilute. And of course, you're walking around with like a giant water balloon (laughs) inside you, right? Your uterus is filled with amniotic fluid. And if we think about it from like a logical perspective, if you are dehydrated and you go to the hospital and get IV fluids, they don't give you pure distilled water in an IV. It always comes with salt. It always comes with electrolytes because in your body, electrolytes and fluids go hand in hand. So I don't know why it's hard for us to understand that when your fluid levels in your body are higher, you also have a higher need for electrolytes and salt is no exception. I mean, it's one of the major electrolytes in your system. So um, this, there's you know, this old adage that it's just across all the dietary guidelines, right? That we should limit our salt intake and this carries over to pregnancy as well due to outdated information on high blood pressure supposedly being caused by high salt intake, which the majority of the time is actually not true, um, including during pregnancy, by the way. Uh, But during pregnancy, you need more salt. It's okay to have more salt. There's a reason you you have salt cravings. So honor those cravings and consume your pickles and olives and whatever salty things to taste. And if you're experiencing things like leg cramps, headaches, swelling. Yes, I said swelling and high blood pressure. Yes, I said high blood pressure. (laughs) It's probably a sign you're not getting enough salt. So high quality, unrefined sea salt. So you're not only getting the sodium, but you're getting, you know, a full complement of trace minerals goes a long way into you just, you know, feeling good during your pregnancy. Um, There is research showing that we should not be recommending salt restriction whatsoever during pregnancy, including a Cochrane analysis, which does like these huge systematic reviews. They're, you know, very critical of the research. And even they said there's not enough evidence to recommend salt restriction um, during pregnancy. So don't restrict it. Second thing about um, salt and baby food. So I have a whole write-up on my blog, which um, if people search salt, salt and baby food, I think, or just search my blog for salt, the article will come right up. Um, Gosh, I don't know what part of it to answer, but essentially, usually they recommend um, not introducing salt into baby's foods under one year of age and give all sorts of rationale as to why you should not do that. And it's going to harm their kidneys and it's going to just all the things. And that article basically debunks all of them, all the way down to the way that the sodium recommendations were even set for infants, which is just not based on good evidence 
at all. Um, so my opinion on salt for babies is that uh, just feed babies as you feed the rest of the family, right? Yeah. Cook real food, salt your, salt your food to taste with high quality unrefined sea salt. And, uh, you know, don't really worry about it. Um, if your kids are eating a whole bunch of processed food, yeah, they're probably getting a lot of salt, but the salt is probably the least of my concerns about what they're getting. It's all the other right. junk that's in the processed food. So I think in the context of just eating um, a whole foods diet where you salt your food to taste, just give them whatever table foods you're eating. I think it's completely ridiculous that we've ended up in a place where we have people, you know, doing baby led weaning and other things where they're cooking entirely separate meals for their infants because they don't want to expose them to any salt. I mean, it's crazy. It's totally unrealistic and it causes so much stress, unnecessary stress for parents when the guidelines on salt for baby are based on average sodium intake from breast milk from a very tiny sample of women when the research now shows that sodium levels in breast milk can be over 15 times fold higher than the levels that were set for the adequate intake for babies. I mean, it's like, wow. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, breast milk sodium can vary widely and, and therefore it just the recommendations have literally no teeth. And when they were brought up for revision, that information was brought to their attention. And instead of changing it, they made the sodium like levels even more restrictive wow. um, for young babies. So, you know, it's just mind boggling the amount of, I don't, I don't even know, special interests. Like, I, I, I don't know what guided this. You would think the processed food industry would want to <laughs> give them more leeway on salt. Um, so I don't know why they didn't take into account the fact that there's basically no scientific basis for the recommendations, but nonetheless, um, so they stand. Yeah, we're uh, gearing up to do baby led weaning. At least that's the the plan for my son. You know, six months and beyond. Um, but I think that takes a lot of pressure off of me not having to make separate meals for him. Um, so I like that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, while we're on the topic of um, just avoidances and and what not to avoid, I guess during pregnancy. Um, any thoughts there on um, which foods are actually important to avoid? So obviously we hear like avoid raw fish and raw cheeses and undercooked eggs and lunch meat, which right. personally I threw most of that out the window. Uh, but right. any thoughts on, on which foods would be important um, and which are outdated? And then, you know, I guess my question would be, should we instead maybe shift the focus to avoidance of toxicity and processed ingredients yeah. versus, you know, the concern of, of foodborne illness? Well, you know where I stand on this issue. So <laughs> I, I think we need to weigh the whole eating on the safe side to avoid um, food poisoning argument against A, the relative risk of actually getting sick from those foods that are on the food to avoid list, which is very slim, by the way, um, versus risking nutrient deficiencies from not consuming those foods. Um, so I, I can point people to chapter four of Real Food for Pregnancy, where like break down the, you know, what's the relative risk of getting sick for, from undercooked eggs, for example, from salmonella. And it's just extremely, extremely rare. The chances of getting listeriosis during pregnancy, I think it's like 0.3% per 100,000 women. It's like really, really slim. 
and yet we cut out like an entire swath of foods because of it. And yet we don't recommend that people limit their intake of raw fruits and vegetables, even though those account for 46% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U.S. Eggs account for 2%. You know, it's just like, how, right. who, who looked at these numbers and decided like what goes on this list and what doesn't go on this list. And I'm not telling people to not eat fruits and vegetables. I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate. Like right. this doesn't make sense. Um, as far as what to actually avoid, I, I think you can make the case that in terms of food safety, raw oysters or raw shellfish might be a little risky because if, again, if you look at the numbers on it, about 75% of seafood associated foodborne illness outbreaks are from things like raw oysters. So although I think raw oysters are an incredibly nutrient dense source of nutrition, and if you have access to really fresh, good ones, and you feel like eating them, like, go for it. Um, as far as like putting things on a list, I think those arguably could be on the list because there is a high relative risk of getting sick from them, right? Um, even though they're highly nutritious. But rather than focusing on foods to avoid just for food safety purposes, I like people to be thinking more about just general food safety. Like how fresh is the food you're getting? Are you handling it well? Are, is your kitchen clean when you're preparing foods? Are you eating more at home versus eating out at restaurants? Like restaurants are where the majority of infections happen. So if you're just taking basic food safety precautions and just really trusting your nose, I mean, your nose is so attuned to food spoilage and any off odors during pregnancy. You know, a good example of this is like, when I was pregnant, I did eat salami. I do enjoy salami and I was not concerned about listeria, <laughs> but I could only eat it like the day I opened it and the day after, like day three and beyond, it smelled bad. I couldn't eat it. I had to make my husband eat it. So there was something about it. And of course, we know like the longer things are open and the longer they're in the fridge, like the greater likelihood that they could be growing something icky. For whatever reason, my nose was like, nope, don't touch it. So trust your nose. It's really pretty attuned to these things. Um, but as far as non-food safety foods to avoid, definitely alcohol is one that I think it's hard to make a nutritional rationale that you should include it, right? Um, there is some question about how much you can consume and not have adverse effects. And the research kind of goes back and forth where you have some countries where they allow a glass of wine and other countries where they're like, no, don't have any. So again, I think to some degree, it's, it's really up to you. And I do talk about the relative risks and the considerations. Um, but we also have to remember that alcohol is not providing you with any micronutrients or any great amount of micronutrients um, that you need for your growing baby. Plus you have to use nutritional resources to detoxify it, like use choline and B vitamins and other things that could otherwise be going to baby. So I think it's um, easier to make the case to, yes, avoid alcohol since we don't know the amount that is, you know, absolutely no risk. Certainly caffeine, they typically recommend um, limiting that to about 200 milligrams of caffeine per day. So that works out to like one to maybe two coffees, depending on how strong your coffee is. Um, and if you're doing tea or chocolate, it's probably not a concern because they're not high enough in caffeine unless you're 
drinking like eight cups of tea a day. You probably don't need to worry about that. Um, and then beyond that, I'm looking at things like things that are just not adding any nutritional value to the diet. So refined carbohydrates and refined sugar don't have any micronutrients to add value to your life. Do you need to avoid them entirely? Like you can never have a treat or something? Of course not. But should we really be emphasizing them as a major part of the diet? No, not at all. Um, artificial sweeteners, I know you, you two are big on this. I don't think should have any place in the prenatal diet. They disrupt the microbiome and they have um, some unfortunate consequences potentially on um, increasing the risk of obesity in children uh, later in life. So there appears to be some sort of like a fetal programming effect potentially. And then um, considering the quality of fats in your diet. Mm -hmm. So refined vegetable oils that are high in omega-6 and trans fat have an abundant amount of research linking them to problems. Um, it's kind of unfortunate that we're in a place where our dietary guidelines recommend all these unsaturated plant fats is like the, you know, healthiest fats when it's actually the complete opposite. Like any of these, any of these cooking oils that are sold in a large clear plastic bottle, do not buy them. <laughs> like do not use them. Um, we're unfortunately in a place where a lot of the research that has been done to sort of claim that a high fat diet is harmful are using precisely these oils, soy oil, corn oil, cottonseed oil, et cetera. Um, they have no benefits and only risks, in my opinion, trans fats included. And then finally, I don't recommend, and you could like make a whole list of, you know, food additives that have no place, but just as like a, an ingredient to focus on, soy foods, I don't think should make up a large part of the diet either. I think you can make the case for small amounts of fermented soy. Um, but if you're regularly consuming like soy milk and tofu and soy protein products, there are so many potential issues with soy food consumption in pregnancy that I don't think it should be a major part of your diet. A small amount probably isn't going to cause problems, but as a, like a major part of your diet or the major dietary source of protein, I think you can run into some problems. Great. I think that's really helpful for listeners. I want to be respectful of your time. So we want to ask you one final question. I'm thinking Becky, for your case, we go on the baby led weaning question <laughs> um, on the idea of uh, fortification. So uh, an exclusively breastfed babe and a mom that's eating a, you know, real food, nutrient dense diet and, and supplementing with her prenatal still. Mm -hmm. Do we have to worry about iron supplementation for exclusive breastfed babies that are bringing in more of a baby led weaning, you know, from that window of maybe six to eight months until they're getting a solid amount of red meat in? Um, is that something to consider? And um, I also am going to link because we're not maybe having enough time, but your awesome blog on vitamin D supplementation for infants and breastfeeding moms. And my question along that vein is, is it important to consider K1, K2 in the vitamin D, especially since many infants now are using it, you know, right from birth at that 400 I use a day and some may use for a longer period of time, especially those, in, you know, cold and flu regions and whatnot, um, all the way through pediatrics and consideration of that supplement as an isolate versus in a combination formula. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, for the first question, 
I'm like, sorry, girl. I'm always giving no, you the devil. It's good. You're giving me like three <laughs> questions in one. I'll try to remember it all. So for the food part, um, I can direct people to, if you go to my website, search starting solids, there's a post all about starting solids where I talk about baby led weaning and all the different options, but also address the iron as well as zinc considerations. Um, so more so than food and more so than breast milk, the biggest uh, predictor of low iron status in infants in that age group is whether or not they had delayed cord clamping or not at birth. Did they get the additional approximately 30% of their cord blood that they would get if cord, if the cord was not clamped until it stopped pulsing and turned white. And that really like, that depends on a bunch of different birth circumstances. So that may or may not have happened, but in the cases where babies do receive all of their cord blood, it's pretty rare for you to have any issues with low iron or anemia. So I'll throw that out there that, it, that you know, probably has more to do with that because iron levels in breast milk are fairly fixed. Um, I've done a huge deep dive into nutrient transfer into breast milk. I have a whole webinar on that on the Women's Health Nutrition Academy. Um, and iron levels in breast milk are just pretty straightforward. They don't change much despite maternal intake or supplementation. Um, so I think we have to kind of like rewind and take like a bigger picture on what's going on. As far as um, specifically supplementing baby, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of, of solo standalone iron supplements as a whole for anyone because food sources do such a better job in terms of absorption and not irritating the gut and also having a full complement of other synergistic nutrients that work with it that I really prefer to go for food. So if you can, some of the earliest foods to offer babies should be high iron. Um, these high iron foods are also high zinc, which is helpful because that's another mineral of concern for baby's growth and development. And those are typically the two minerals that they fortify into those processed baby foods like infant rice cereal and other stuff. So mm -hmm. you can skip the rice cereal and just do real food. So liver pate is a fantastic first food for babies. Um, if you're comfortable with it and a lot of people get kind of weirded out about seafood for babies, I mean, it is a potential allergen, although there's research suggesting maybe earlier introduction of allergies, allergen, allergenic foods, excuse me, um, actually might reduce the risk of allergies. So I'll throw that out there. But if you have, um, you know, oysters or other shellfish, they're also extremely high iron, high zinc, high iodine, high selenium high B12, contain DHA, also really good options to offer babies. Um, and personally, I offered those foods within about the first month of introducing solids with um, both of my kids. They really liked seafood. Um, the pate is great because, I mean, it's already a puree, right? You can just preload a spoon if you want to do it baby led weaning style and let them feed themselves. Um, both of my kids really loved pate at that age. And then of course, any type of like slow cooked or ground meat that's like soft enough for them to, you know, if you can mash it with your tongue against the roof of your mouth, it's technically like a safe um, texture for baby. There's also some people who will just like pre-chew the food themselves and give it to your baby. If you're comfortable with that, you could do that. 
Um, but I would definitely be looking at animal foods as some of the first things to offer. And I would personally do that far and above and before supplementation unless absolutely necessary. As far as the second question, which was on vitamin D. So vitamin D is also a nutrient of concern in pregnancy as well as breastfeeding. I have an article coming out on vitamin D in pregnancy soon. But as far as breastfeeding goes, they've found that um, breast milk is often low in vitamin D. And that is because mothers are not getting enough. And if you provide mother with enough vitamin D, it also transfers enough into her breast milk where you don't require a separate vitamin D supplement for baby. If that is not the case, if mother is not getting a supplement um, or not regularly sunbathing, for example, um, getting in vitamin D in other ways, then they do recommend a separate vitamin D supplement for baby. As far as should it be also provided with K2, I personally always take my vitamin D with K2. I don't see why it should be any different for babies, but there is not an official recommendation on that, nor have I seen any studies actually on vitamin K2 and infants. Um, and there's very limited research on vitamin K transfer via breast milk. I don't know if there's any studies specifically mm -hmm. on K2 transfer via breast milk, although I would just from a logical perspective, since all of the other fat soluble vitamins are transferred via breast milk and are reflective of maternal intake and or nutrient status, I would expect it to be the same. Maybe the research will come out someday to, to prove either way, but um, I don't see a problem with supplementing either one. I think vitamin D is something that arguably it, there's so many different cofactors for utilizing it well. Um, that K2 is one of them. You have magnesium, you have riboflavin, you have vitamin A. I mean, the list goes on. Um, I think it's important to kind of think of it in, in synergy with its other cofactors. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I haven't been able to find research either on um, the K1, K2 argument with supplementation. So we do our vitamin D balanced blend liquid around here. My baby loves it and I'm not worried about the, the K. If anything, I think it's beneficial. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's tell listeners um, where they can find more about your work. I'm going to link a lot of the blogs that we've touched on, um, but where else should they look? So my, my main place of residence on the interwebs is my website, <laughs> which is lilynicholsrdn.com. So that'll link out to kind of everything you need to know. You'll see a tab for the blog. You'll see a tab for freebies. You can read the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free there. Um, it also links out to my books. So that's kind of the place to go. It's all in one place, easy. Uh, as far as social media land, I'm most active these days on Instagram and it's the same as my website. So Lily Nichols RDN. And let me see if there's anything else. I think that's kind of it. <laughs> awesome. And you said we'll share with listeners a free chapter download of Real Food for Pregnancy. So we'll put that link in today's show notes as well. And both of Lily's books you can get on her website as well, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. That's right. 
Yep. Yep. So just before we let you go, Lily, this is something that we ask all of our guests and because we're all dietitians, we just can't help ourselves. <laughs> we would love to hear your 24 hour recall. So yesterday from when you woke up to when you went to bed, what was on your plate? Oh gosh. It's also a memory so exercise for mama. <laughs> Let's see. Well, as with almost every day, I usually start my day with eggs cooked over some kind of sauteed veggies. So I think yesterday I did spinach. Was it spinach or was it mushrooms? One of the two with some eggs and bacon. That was breakfast. Let's see, lunch. Oh, I think I had a tangerine sometime in the day because, you know, tangerines are in season in the winter, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I had that. We had leftover takeout Thai food for our lunch. And I usually try to stretch it into like a bunch of different meals. So I like heated up the soup, which was like a tom kha, like coconut chicken soup and added a whole bunch of vegetables to it. That was lunch. And then let's see, what was dinner? I think we had, did we have leftovers again? No, I made a, um, it was a bit of a carbier dinner. So I had uh, like a lentil pasta and I made a beef bolognese sauce. So I did ground beef and a bunch of Italian seasoning, bunch of tomatoes, tomato paste, put some hidden liver in there for good measure because why not? Um, yeah, that was dinner and I had some sauteed broccoli on the side. And we had dessert. We had raspberries with dark chocolate. Ooh, that sounds delightful. I think Becky and I would both grab a, a chair at that table. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it was Valentine's Day. So the, the chocolate and it raspberries. Was. Yes. <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lily, for joining us on the Naturally Nourished podcast. We will share with our listeners uh, every place to find you. And we've really enjoyed the conversation today. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.